In his concluding chapter now to his book, The Roots of American Order, Dr. Kirk informs the reader of what he calls a national problem. And he quotes now James Bryce that after the age of Lincoln, no longer were great and prudent men chosen for the American presidency. And Bryce made this comment now in 1888 in his book, three volumes, The American Commonwealth, where he surveys that thing called public opinion, which he hoped then would serve the growing American population at those breaking points called elections. Now he feared that with so many fleeting impressions, the public mind would struggle to make proper connections. And so there are three volumes again to Bryce's work, which in a few words call to mind that unless public opinion becomes properly formed, we the people cannot have a set of bedrock beliefs. So where then do we find these bedrock beliefs? It was a warm and humid day, humid Sunday, second, uh, in that floor, second floor room in Philadelphia from May 25th, September 1787. And the drapes were closed as were the windows. And all the original purpose then was to revise the existing Articles of Confederation. And it quickly became obvious that the delegates had bigger plans. And so a lot of debating. After being signed, copies of the newly minted Constitution had to make their way throughout all of the colonies which are about to become states. And that meant that public opinion pieces had to be written to be published in newspapers that explained the public philosophy in that document. So you've got 85 essays then written by James Madison, sometimes considered to be our most philosophical president, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, intended to build public support for the Constitution. I've referred to the Federalist Papers on more than one occasion here as something like an American political Bible. Point being now something like this. Declaration of Independence is signed on August 2nd, 1776, and those who signed agreed with the text sentiments. September 17th, 1789, 39 of the 55 Philadelphia delegates signed, which suggests majority agreement with the text sentiment Anti-Federalists were opposed because there was no Bill of Rights included just then. Only the Constitution is different because it needed to be ratified by the colonies. And that took a little over two years with five states favorable, four states divided, and four states generally opposed. So nine then out of the 13. Summer of 1789, the brand new newly minted House of Representatives debated and passed then the Bill of Rights suggesting again that the elected representatives agreed with the sentiments inside that text. So as for public opinion then formed by an emerging political philosophy when the colonies then ratified the Constitution and became states, one should understand that the ratification reflected agreement with the fundamental unity of the now various states with the ultimate authority in the Constitution and with the people rather than a confederation of single states. This suggests a communal, if not friendly, attachment of the people of America as a nation rather than an amalgamation of states. So it's a union. Supposedly true even to this very, very day, even if California <laughs> is a nation unto itself. Pardon? For California? Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the 
let's say that it is a, it, it's a particular process that is going to be challenged and come into view in another 55 or 60 years when we fight a war. So. Okay, so what our political philosophy then is to be found in that document is what is meant by, quote, Americanism. Now, what that has become is problematic. And the issue has grown even more complex. So it's a serious challenge. James Madison knew that public opinion had to be sovereign, but it takes time to form and must form gradually. And he was concerned with what he called now impulsive majorities, which he described as impetuous, hasty, overheated, contaminated with toxic passions, temporal passions too often then, <coughs> reach conclusions in advance, whereas the reasoning faculty was capable of interpreting the facts. So his idea of we the people was not a fluctuating, reeling mob falling quickly before flaming again, but a people championed by prudence, which what Dr. Kirk calls then that classical virtue. So some background then before we arrive at Isaac Hecker and Orestes Brownson. So for a good many years, I taught a class titled We the People and American Journey. It included a section on the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and of course the ratification process. So a student asked me one day, her name is Catherine Sims, she now teaches at the college. She asked me, were there any Catholics at the convention? There were five men from Catholic Maryland, a religious haven at that time for Catholics persecuted in England. Two of the five were Catholic, Daniel Carroll and Thomas Fitzsimmons. Now, they participated with a certain amount of delicacy because they were, or had been, subject to British penal laws on Catholics, which included a provision preventing Catholics from owning a horse. There must have been a reason. So the question you see in England then was one of loyalty, which included a loyalty oath that required Catholics and other denominations to be loyal to the Church of England, which was repugnant enough, but which also included a prohibition preventing service in public offices, thus no right to suffrage, rather isolation from the public. And interestingly, Presbyterians also suffered since their marriages were not recognized by the English hierarchy. And so at that time, you had bunches and bunches of Presbyterians living in sin. Now, this was also before the time in which you find waves of immigrants beginning to arrive in predominantly Catholic Maryland, excuse me, this was before the time in which they ratified the Constitution. And so you have the Diocese of Baltimore in 1789, which was then given preeminence over all of the other dioceses in the then United States. With the approval of Pius VI came the election of the first American bishop, John Carroll, the older brother of Daniel Carroll, who firmly now established Catholicism in the United States, founding Georgetown University, which at that time then was a training place for priests. Part of his legacy is also John Carroll University, located in Ohio. Now, there were some issues here, and one was that there would be a, the possibility that a foreign bishop might be imposed. The solution would be to create a method of appointing church authorities that would not make it appear 
as if they were receiving their appointment from a foreign power. So John Carroll sent a report to Rome informing the Holy See on the status of Catholic Maryland, which at that time only had 19 priests, but most of the prominent families were Catholic. And in the report, he says, they're given to dancing and reading novels, <laughs> to which we've got to say, oh, for shame. <laughs> now, the result of this was the following, and that is, priests in Maryland were allowed to suggest two or three names from their familiarity from which the Pope would choose their bishop. Two things occurred after that. One was the site of the first cathedral in the United States, and the election then of John Carroll as the Bishop of Baltimore by the clergy of the newly independent United States in what looks almost to be like a kind of primary. He became bishop as a vote of 24 out of 25. Now, although fledgling, this particular process seems to me to have a kind of unique American story attached to it. So although fledgling, it seems to be American. From that time then, Maryland became a state. Catholics were arriving in great numbers from French Canada and French Arcadians making their way down to Louisiana, eventually to morph into, morph into Cajuns. And they speak a language that nobody understands. <laughs> now there's a problem again, because we've also got then the Irish dubbed Irish Catholics. The problem is established Catholics at this time were not always happy with the newly arrived. So French Catholics were oftentimes contemptuous of the newly arrived Irish, and then there are more complications when you find the Italians, Sicilians, and Eastern Europeans beginning to arrive in droves, and that the facts are even accurate. Over a 60-year period, during the 19th century, there were some 700,000 or so converts in addition to all of those immigrants. There must be something afoot to suggest such a flourishing. So where's the problem, if there is a problem? This is John England. And around Charleston in 1784, there's a little plantation there called White Marsh. And it established in its own constitution an article allowing for the congregational election of laypersons to have advice and consent of finances, which meant something different from a mere consulting role in the decision-making process. So we know then that John England was elected the first bishop of Charleston, age 33, and this in 1790 by a vote of 23 out of 26. And he had something of an interesting ecclesial imagination, set up a diocesan constitution, which also called for popularly elected delegates in the diocese, and you could do something like this. You could call this suffrage which is near and dear to the American heart. Bishop England adored the American political system, which included the separation of church and state, religious toleration, freedom of conscience, and wrote at one time that if the Pope too interfered in local affairs, such would be an act of unjust aggression. And he was lobbying also for a kind of ecumenical association of local churches in the Charleston area which, by the way, is also the site of the very, very first Jewish synagogue in America. So if you study it a bit more, it looks like Americanism with greater contributions by lay persons. And in time, 
became a bit too much for Europeans. And also some American bishops who sensed that the church in America was claiming too much independence. And you would make a note here, because I'm using discretion by ensuring that the phrase says church in America as opposed to the American church. Now, the effect was eventually for Rome to declare Americanism a heresy, and any such thinking then in Catholic colleges was suppressed, having drawn the ire of the Vatican. Catholic leaders in America, however, held the belief that a self-confident American republic with no established church was actually the best forum for the growth of Catholicism. Such was not favored by Pope Leo XIII, who condemned the views which effectively then ended the movement. But there was some good news in as much as Catholic colleges continued to be founded, which included Boston College, College of the Holy Cross, St. John's, St. Benedict in Minnesota, and of course Notre Dame, and all of this then upgraded the national cultural status of Catholicism. Now, one problem began then, which evolved in the 1890s when European clerics, continental authorities, detected what they thought were signs of modernism, the kind of liberalism that had been condemned by Pius IX in what was called the Syllabus of Errors, which appeared in 1864. One of the propositions then defended the temporal power of the Pope over the Papal States, Italy in particular. So it's usually understood, by extension on the other hand, other European states as well. But more strongly, by Pope Leo XIII, who lamented that in America, church and state were divorced, and he announced his preference for closer relationships, what he referred to as favors, between the Catholic Church and the American Republic, which he thought would be best accomplished along European lines. January of 1899, Pope Leo penned an apostolic letter to Cardinal James Gibbons of Baltimore, where he condemned then Americanism as the ill-defined movement to reconcile Catholicism with American culture, American political philosophy. The church is one, he argued, by unity and doctrine and placed at the center and foundation in the chair of blessed Peter and thus is rightly called the Roman Church. But there is suspicion, he wrote in the letter, that there are some who conceive and would have the church in America to be different from what it is in the rest of the world. Thus, from all that he suspected was foregoing, he was not able to give approval to those views which in their collective sense are called Americanism. And to be very, very frank, he had some really, really good suggestions. And one of which is, this is going on exactly during the same time as the president, presidency of Ulysses Grant. And there's a congressman there whose name was James Blaine. And James Blaine began to put together a series of things that would lead to an amendment to the Constitution in which there would be no opportunity at all for any kind of government funds to go to parochial institutions. And by the way, read under parochial institutions Catholicism. And this, by the way, did not make it as an amendment to the United States Constitution, but it did make its way into some state constitutions, including Missouri. 
and it's only been in the last 20 years or so that another case made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, which interesting comes about as a result of a Lutheran church that had a daycare facility for children, non-denominational. They wrote a grant to achieve maybe five or $600 to put those chewed up rubber tires out on this non-denominational playground. <laughs> In that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, listen folks, get some common sense. What's the big deal? You see? So if this is going on in this particular time period, I mean, I think the Pope has some really, really good reasons. So you need now to listen to me for just a bit here because I want to add some context to this controversy. One is for me to emphasize again that the roots of American order are pre-modern and the result of providence and that an eternal divine order precedes the temporal national order and thus also informed by, and here I'm going to sound just like Johnny One Note, natural law and natural rights both of which should inform and influence statute or civil law. If America has slipped into heresy, it's the result of what we know to be modernism, which in terms of justice has become injustice, what with the Supreme Court decisions legalizing eugenics, and equally so that the nation's political leaders might lack virtue and prudence, and the only way for America to become exceptional and achieve national greatness will be through moral reformation. As I look out into the public square, I see very, very few profiles in courage. I see passions and toxic appetites and little in the way of precise language and eloquence in the service of human nobility. He who once said that America has the soul of a church would likely be more than disappointed and more so since the varieties of our institutions seem to be divided between right or left or compromised. And so I mean then, the works and voices that help form our nation. One might recall for a moment that Pope Leo said in 1887 again that with the founding of Catholic University, such a place was there to give the Republic its best citizens. So the second context then is historical since we're sort of stuck for the moment in between 1899 and following or toppling into the 20th century. The times are complex, especially back in Europe in the latter days of the Third Republic. There are the French monarchists, authoritarians, and Republicans. And the tensions are as follows. Much of the older clergy are in agreement with the monarchists and the authoritarians inasmuch as they receive favors from the state, which means stipends and salaries. But the reciprocity is also that in France at this time, the state has substantial say in the choice of bishops. The Republicans, on the other hand now, are the majority of French parishioners, and their circumstances are deplorable. In 1905, the French assembly then passed a law that separated the church from the state, and the result was disastrous. Church schools were closed. Priests resigned right and left. Religious orders were expelled. Church buildings became government buildings and so on. Nothing much changed until the 1920s when a bearable coexistence became available. And the interesting point is this. Many of those younger priests who remained had for decades looked back across the Atlantic to uh, America for inspiration. And then on May 16, 1620, 
after a half century, Benedict XV concluded the canonization process of Joan of Arc, much beloved by the Republicans. And the suggestion is that's when France again, Catholicism in France again began to gain some traction. So we arrived then at this point, Father Isaac Hecker. In the United States, the issue of Americanism then became compounded when a biography of Father Isaac Hecker appeared in 1891 by one of the Polish brothers. The problem is, biography much admired then by the younger French priests during this latter time of the Third Republic. Hecker, it should be noted, had been dead for years. But the biography drew the ire then of the Vatican. And the problem was an interpolation in the French translation which inaccurately stated that Father Hecker had supported less emphasis on church authority and more on individual initiative. You read the American one, you won't find that. You read the French one, you'll find that interpolation. So the problem then, then, as a consequence, Pope Leo XIII writes another letter to then Cardinal Gibbons expressing concerns that the church in America should be much more cautious of adapting too much of American culture. So who was this then, Father Isaac Hecker, and was he a radical, pernicious, or was he interested in public opinion and public philosophy? In brief, this might be little known, but in April 1865, obviously a time of extraordinary disorder, Paulist Father Isaac Hecker founded a public periodical titled The Catholic World, and he did so for a growing Catholic population, which was intended then to form or inform public philosophy. He insisted that it be a first-class publication in format, quality, and equal, if not superior, to any other secular magazine in the country. But why? Because the question was whether those faithful actually owned a place at the We the People public square table, or would they remain isolated? Could one, in other words, be both American and Catholic, or would that suggest an issue, if not anathema? So the magazine then is interesting because it included commentary on political and religious events of the day. It was renamed the New Catholic World in 72, and then reverted to its original title in 1989 before ceasing publication in 1996. Suppose then that one meandered into a library archive, and you went back then to find out and survey, say, for example, the first five or so editions, which carried informative articles on, one, the process of the church in America. There would be one on Noah's Ark, one on Christian art, one on recent discoveries in the catacombs, and an interestingly interesting fine article on the Italian poet Dante and his influence on Christian poetry. The magazine, a bit esoteric, but proof that it was serious since there were also articles on church history and a lovely, lovely chapter on Catholic philosophy in the 13th century. And again, it was aimed at the dispositions and the experiences of Catholic people in America. So if one were then to survey those early editions, I think one would be very hard-pressed to find anything radical, albeit, you can expect this, some laundry was about to be laundered. Because 
the Irish-born Catholic Bishop John Hughes of New York accused Father Hecker of, quote, inborn Protestant notions <laughs> and advised him to take two years off to contemplate his errors. <sighs> Not so with Bishop Bernard Fitzpatrick of Boston, who gave a round of applause and encouragement. So what you have here are, I guess, dueling bishops. Father Hecker continued to evangelize which was also to energize public opinion and public philosophy among Catholics in America using the means of the day, which was preaching, public lecture circuit, and the printing. The issue, Hecker believed that the Catholic faith and American political culture of small government, property rights, civil society, and a Republican government were not opposed, but could be reconciled for the benefit of all. Now, Interestingly, there's a guy back in Great Britain at this time who argues that what Hecker was doing in England, what Hecker was doing in America was the exact same thing that he was doing in Great Britain. And that, by the way, is Cardinal John Henry Newman, which leads to the suggestion sometimes that Hecker is sometimes referred to as the American Newman. History records then that Hecker and the Catholic world were also accused by a French cleric Charles Mayenne, of minimizing Catholic doctrine. So in the briefest terms again, Hecker was encouraging American Catholics simply to break out of their isolation, take part in the intellectual life of America, sort of social amelioration into the culture in America, and thus his association with the phrase Americanism. So what's the backlash? Such now, especially by French authoritarian clerics was thought to be a symptom again of modernism and liberalism because it meant giving lay people too much power and breaking down the established distinction between priest and parishioner. On the other hand, given the number of immigrants arriving from European Catholic countries and the number of converts all holding to their faith, the problem still was isolation or assimilation. And so Father Hecker and then Arrestos Brownstein saw no contradiction between being an American and being Catholic. And they were laboring in the court of public opinion that on the basis of ideas, no problem per se existed in promoting Catholic assimilation into the culture of America, and this now again in the latter decades of the 1800s. Of course, part of this again emerges in Europe with a reaction against the syllabus now in Spain came the worry that the Spanish government would pretty darn soon disestablish the entire church. So there are issues again as to exactly how authoritative the syllabus happened to be. Newman argued that those who were reacting negatively against the syllabus, because he thought it more likely that they would really should probably just reread the thing, it was more likely that it was really a recourse to original church documents, and those documents alone carried the force of an apostolic voice. So the controversy as to whether it was the Pope's voice in the syllabus having dogmatic force, since his voice owned the force of an apostolic voice or not. So controversy rages over the seas. But with the United States, the country was just trying to celebrate the 4th of July. <laughs> Albeit, one might expect with just a little bit too much adulation. So again, it's the concern here now of the European authoritarian clerics began to finger point 
westward to America, where civil allegiance was deeply present. However, with obviously too much faith, obviously too much faith in the argument for right manifest destiny, which means that America would very soon surpass all the nations in human history in wisdom and that nothing remains but to continue on this merry way that we have so far followed, which means to indulge in the most glorious and thrilling anticipation of future greatness and renown. That could smack a little bit too much of what the Greeks called hubris, excess pride, and would. Catholics in America need wider latitude in a nation largely Protestant. In that argument then, the latent suggestion that the Catholic Church in America would become a different Catholic Church, and this is again coming from Europe. Back in America, however, Father Hecker, traveling up and down the East Coast, lecturing, evangelizing, to most, by the way, who are not Catholic, one writer equipped said that he is putting American machinery into the ancient ark and he's getting ready to run her by steam. Now, to say the least, uh, the man had pluck. But his message was also one of caution and a bit different standard of greatness and self-adulation. So one should, however, regard Father Hecker as a very serious man and as an American Catholic evangelical missionary creating a public philosophy, and writing in a journal of public opinion, creating a Catholic space in that phrase, we the people. His name thus is closely associated again with the phrase Americanism, since his missionary activity on behalf of the Catholic Church in the United States argued that the church would remain isolated unless a means could be found to clear away misconceptions, and one of those misconceptions, of course, would be stereotypes. Enter Orestes Brownson, Father Hecker's friend and a convert, who in 1844 began a life work in defense of the Catholic Church in America with a prolific amount of writing and a rightful place not only in the historical chronicle of religion in America, but Catholicism in America and a political philosophy, but also for an America vested in pre-modern history. Among numerous topics that he took up, he took up the question of how loyal can Catholics be in the United States, especially when it seems that public opinion is stacked against Catholics. States because of public opinion. So Catholic citizens couldn't be loyal to American political philosophy and would prefer, if given the chance then, simply to overhaul the whole Constitution to make it compliant with the Vatican. Or so went the argument, so went the fear. Now, Dr. Kirk, on the other hand, believed Brownson to be a luminous figure who became much, much more important during the 1950s when that phrase, under God, was placed in the Pledge of Allegiance, which suggests that something of a Brownson revival which develops into the 1960s and following. And we know that Brownson contributed frequently to the Catholic world and to his own Brownson's quarterly, including a pair of seminal positions, pieces in 1870, one on church and state, and one on civil and religious freedom. So kindly now, bear with me. 
we need to dig into a bit of American history post-war between the states. In this article on church and state, which is now going to be occurring during that period in American history after the war between the states called Reconstruction, Brownson first of all retreats all the way back to pre-modern founding by arguing that America is indeed the product of a combination of Christian and secular influences, but with an uneasy marriage to the latter, who saw natural rights as unconnected with anything at all transcendent, so in effect, modern and autonomous. The Christian influence, however, acknowledged that natural rights were derived from the authority of God and therefore dependent upon an eternal Christian mystique. So, We've had this discussion before. The American nation comes into being as a consequence of providence, which owns a constitution, albeit unwritten. So the key word here now is authority, and for Brownson, consent within the American order of we the people cannot ultimately be grounded in the so-called will of the people. It has to be grounded in popular sovereignty, but limited by the authority of God and both Exodus and Deuteronomy were his benchmarks. So in that regard, what institution, he writes, is available to so influence public opinion and public philosophy in the public square? He notes that yes, indeed, the people are, as a result of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, freed from a class of political masters over whom they have no control, but they need governing and must be governed, lest one follow the French example of unfettered human will. So, where do we turn? This is where it gets interesting and is again likely the reason of the later Brownson revival. Catholicism recognizes the equality of all men before the natural law, which he argues is again the true basis of liberty. To the argument, that Catholic principles are at odds with fundamental American principles, Brownson argues by echoing Augustine, that Catholicism is not hostile to any particular political order except tyranny. And point of fact, he says, it's the church which provides the remedy for defective orders when there are no checks upon arbitrary power, and it does so by imposing moral restraints on its use and where such checks do exist, the church hallows them and renders them inviolable. That's not only Augustinian, it's also Thomistic. So, in a nutshell, constitutional order must then connect with the natural law if it is to govern the people, which does not call for government imposition of a state-sponsored religion. But if the Constitution affirms then a constellation of natural law truths, then the deep moral reserves of religious authority lie at the base of the Constitution. And such was also then the ultimate source for the Declaration of Independence. Since the Constitution owns a protection of the free exercise of religion, th such assumes that religious practice is benevolent and worthy of defense, and the government cannot invade it with religious establishment. So the state then, Brownson also worried, must not become so secularized that its only authority is the human will itself, which surely indicates that the will is also depraved. We face that problem today with an argument for unfettered human will under the auspices of natural rights.
So near the end of his life then, he, Brownson, declared that the Constitution needed no change. The state, however, does need a spiritual authority above and independent of the Constitution, and that authority must be competent to define what are and are not the natural rights of man, and then to enforce through the conscience of the people respect for those rights and obedience to them. The key word here again is competent. In then, what might be words for all time, he gave Catholics in America a perpetual vocation by writing that by divine providence, we, as part of we the people, are Americans as well as Catholics. We must preach and teach with humility the primary truths of God and man, which is a task that does not end. So in a republic, he writes, which is not a democracy, the church restrains popular passions, subjects the people to the law of God, and then disposes them to go out, practice those public virtues, and render a republic secure. And so to that end, he continues, thinking again in terms of public opinion and public philosophy in the public square, he repeatedly stressed that Catholic teaching is not at odds with the notion of political or civil liberty, but instead is the very, very ground on such liberty, and he points back across the ocean to those European states, presumably Catholic, but over time had not become Catholic. And so one should draw from this then from Brownson. He believed that the church should dictate should not dictate the contours of public policy, but should rather provide a bedrock of stability, first of all, for the family and for civic associations that promote social harmony, and such an order being the very, very first need of all, order being also remarkably, remarkably fragile. So it's likely that what Brownson might call the American ethos very sadly transforms over the next batch of decades by the modern intellectual classes. And if we had time, we would go through some of this. We'd, we'd, we would find ourselves then studying the social gospel movement, and we would find something also called Christian socialism. This intellectual classes, especially to the point where public opinion and public philosophy no longer take their bearings from the claims of faith and transcendent truth, and natural rights theory becomes terribly, terribly confused. Then in 1993, roughly 117 years after his death, Peter J. Stanless revisited Orestes Brownson's political thought by reviewing Gregory Butler's In Search of the American Spirit, the political thought of Brownson. Butler's book appeared 17 years after the majestic biography by Father Thomas Ryan. Thomas, <coughs> excuse me, Thomas Ryan. What was emerging during those years on this contemporary argument here, say, from the 1950s and the Cold War years as to the meaning of America and the American identity, which had been the concern of Brownson. And we find now Brownson again challenging secular reform schemes which made him a brilliant, brilliant critic of antebellum American culture, and would also have made him a very, very brilliant critic of, say, Lyndon Johnson's The Great Society. The basis of the argument is, again, found in his conversion to Catholicism. 
Now, Dr. Kirk's interest is found in his discussion of Brownson in both the conservative mind and also in the roots of American order, especially in the dozen or so pages concluding that book in which he writes, Brownson's contending against American disorder, Brownson and the just society. Dr. Kirk's point. He mentions, not just in passing, how Brownson argued that Americans in their triumphant materialism and swaggering individualism could not long endure without knowing the meaning of justice. And he contended against the radical doctrines of French rights of man, not those natural rights of the church, long spoken, but the arrogant, abstract, if not ambiguous rights so dictated by Thomas Paine, and still at that memory, the French Revolution. Americans, he writes, had sadly put forward the delusion that the voice of the people is equal to the voice of God, which had become the rallying cry of the French, which led to the sound of the guillotine rising and falling. So Brownson feared if the voice of the people was equal to the voice of God, assuming the voice of the people was the majority, the consequence would be an excuse to alter all law as they might choose even if it sacrificed the common good in public affairs to money-getting and private advantage. Brownson believed that there must reside a sanction for justice and order which cannot be found apart from religious principles. He adds that without such sanctions, we will fight the same battles in political season after political season after political season under the various ideologies attending to make America great again but only the standards of those permanent things taught by the church can refute the egalitarianism fashionable to secularism. He makes two other prescient points. He struggled against the sentimentality of Rousseau, who mistook misty-eyed compassion for justice, which is a sort of I feel your pain kind of notion. And he struggled against smug secularism, which looked upon sin as merely a kind of vestigial survival from barbarous times, to disappear with the march of manifest destiny, which diminished the teaching and the authority of the church. If we look back then now, say some 70 years or so to the beginning of the Cold War, we can find bits and pieces of information suggest something different was in the air which included again that moment on June 14, 1954, when President Eisenhower signed that executive order to insert the phrase under God into the Pledge of Allegiance to emphasize the distinction between the United States and the officially excuse me, atheistic Soviet Union. So the issues continued then in those 1950s years prior to Vatican II, with the point being that Catholics are Catholics first and Americans second, which presumes a question again of loyalty, and which presumes that Catholics are always going to be subject to an external authority apart from America's founding documents and their unequivocal argument for self-government under law. If we gather this up a bit, we find out then the moral authority teaching in the church is presumed to be a powerful corrective against Americanism which is a clear and present danger to the church. But then there was this. From the 1950s into the 1960s, a variety of American conservative 
Cold War journalists appear who were conservative Catholics. Politically now, this is the time in which Kirkian conservatism has taken ripe ferment within all those conservative journalists, vocal defenders of the United States as the standard bearer in the history for political liberty and economic prosperity. So we go back in and we read then Dr. Kirk's The Conservative Mind in America, which took deep, deep root among American political philosophy. And he now is joined by Bill Buckley and his National Review, Brent Bozell, Michael Novak, and a whole variety of these people. Richard John Newhouse also, just to mention a few. So contrary then to the standard narrative, political conservative journalists supporting Americanism were also devout Catholics. They were also among the most assertive that their version of Americanism, politics, coming to terms with American secular culture and so on, Roman Catholicism, and to a very large extent, they were following the script already set by Father Isaac Hecker and Orestes Brownson. Now, whether this coming to terms then led to conclusions hoped for, Hecker and Brownson still up for grabs, because as these conservative Catholic journalists labored to make this turn in American political philosophy, American bishops were also at this time preparing to go to Vatican II. If there is a devastating moral turn to everything that had been advocated by Dr. Kirk and those conservative Catholic journalists, it came about with that landmark decision in 1973, Roe v. Wade, which we likely understand as an instance of judicial activism facetiously decided on the best medical science, but nowhere near transcendent natural law and equally far removed from any idea of a Christian nation. So let me add this personal provision. I think it's difficult to be loyal to America when America seems to be almost solely characterized by the latest iterations of sexual liberation, identity politics, which also suggests again that Americans' origins are rooted in the worst aspects of Enlightenment ideology. Secularism, individualism, materialism, relativism, and so on all perhaps the beginnings of a fated end, or what happens when liberty becomes self-defining and the human will becomes completely emancipated and unfettered. If that happens, those of us who cling to the old, old beliefs might very well be left whispering our thoughts only in the hidden recesses of our own homes. So with that in mind at the end here, Brownson argued that it might be worth our while and by that he meant everyone, including Catholics, to subject the estimate which we have of ourselves to a much more rigid, rigid examination than we had been in the past. After all, the unexamined life is not worth living. If such an examination returns to a conclusion that everything that we are doing is well and fine, no harm will be done. If we discover that it is not well-founded, then we've got to be prepared to adapt with cultural courage a conclusion unfavorable to our national vanity. There's no other way to make America great again. And perhaps his admonitions then are greater today than when he died. America cannot be made great again if the appeal is only to our national value. So Brownson went to be with God then on April 17, 1876. 
He was interred in a cemetery just outside of Detroit. Ten years later, his remains were subsequently transferred then to the crypt of the Basilica of the Sacred Heart in Notre Dame, where all of his, where all of his personal papers are also archived in the Notre Dame Library. His new burial place is referred to as Brownson's Chapel. It's unclear these days what's written on that large flat tombstone because generations and generations of student footsteps have largely made the inscription illegible. But this is very close. Here lies Orestes A. Brownson who humbly acknowledged the true faith. He lived a life of integrity. With tongue and pen, he strongly defended both church and country. And although his body has passed over into death, the works of his mind survive immortal monuments to his genius. I think my blood pressure's gone down quite a bit. <laughs> I hate driving. That's my story and I'm sticking with it. I think we can go home now, maybe. <laughs> I have one more to do for you folks, and that's next week. And it's going to be, again, where I will draw your attention to the way we ended on the second lecture, where I was talking to you about the meeting in Casablanca between Churchill, Stalin, and uh, Roosevelt. And the optimism, considerable optimism, that the war was going to be won. It was going to take time. But on both fronts, the Germans were rapidly, rapidly retreating. So the optimism is there that war is going to be won. But when you consider now the huge, huge amount of destruction, that's got to be rebuilt. And it's something more than just economics and brick and mortar and so on. How, after two horribly destructive wars, you set about rebuilding a culture and a civilization without, first of all, defining what a culture really happens to be and what a civilization happens to be. And I placed in this particular case the Jacques Maritain in this. I mentioned C.S. Lewis for you, W.H. Auden, the poet, and so on. Simone Weil again. But there's another person that's deeply invested in that, and we're going to be on this next week, and that's T.S. Eliot, the poet. And he, interestingly, is in London during the fire bombings. And he has a flat, and one of his jobs is to get his helmet on and his binoculars and go stand on the roof, and he's an air raid warden. And he's warning people the, the coming and coming. And so he sees the huge fires flaming up in London, including then those beautiful Christopher Wren churches being reduced to ashes. So, and he sets about that for a number of different reasons in these radio broadcasts to try to build into the English mind and imagination, the idea of a Christian society. On the ashes, can a Christian society be rebuilt? And he says, well, there's a problem there, because first of all, we better know what it means to think like a Christian. And he's very serious about this. And so that's where we'll be next week, and then I'm going back to retirement. <laughs>